Hello everybody and welcome back to Grace Nerd. My name is Eric if you're new to the channel. So if you like learning about theology or hearing commentary on the Christian life or interacting with culture from a Christian worldview, then make sure that you follow the podcast or subscribe to the YouTube channel and make sure you leave a like on the YouTube video if you're watching, if you enjoyed it. And if you subscribe, make sure that you hit the notification bell so that you know when new videos get uploaded. In this episode, we're going to talk about the issue of what is often called charismatic or continuationist theology versus what's called cessationism. So if you're interested in that topic, stick around and we're going to dive right into it. So because of my journey over the past decade or so, I have friends who line up kind of on both sides of this issue. And so that should make for some interesting comments if you're watching here on YouTube. Make sure that you comment your thoughts below. But I'm going to sort of walk you through my journey and define some terms. And hopefully I can explain the positions well and then eventually give you my basic perspective on it today. So to begin, let's define what charismatic or continuationist theology is. This is a theology that you'll find in places like classical Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches. There's various denominations that hold to beliefs like this. Basically, to sum it up simply, it's the belief that spiritual gifts and supernatural gifts like you find in places like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, this would include miracles like healing or revelatory gifts like prophecy and tongues, interpretation of tongues, things like that. This is the belief that all of these gifts are still operative and they continue to have use and value in the church today. On the opposite side of this, there is what you would call cessationism. And basically what this means is that many of these gifts, particularly those that are more miraculous or supernatural in nature, cessationists believe that these gifts have largely ceased today. Specifically, there's more of an emphasis on the idea of prophetic gifts or revelatory gifts ceasing today. You'll see a few different opinions concerning things like miraculous healing, but generally you might hear a cessationist say something like, sure, miracles can still happen today, God can do whatever he wants, but there's really no such thing today as people carrying around this thing called the gift of healing, where they can just go around healing people. Although I have heard a cessationist or two here and there basically go all out and say they basically don't believe in the miraculous today, though that extreme view is a little more rare. What cessationists will often say is that these revelatory gifts, things like prophecy and tongues, they'll say that these gifts were largely meant to validate the message and the authority of the apostles, and now that their message is complete in the closed canon of the New Testament, then these revelatory gifts no longer have any use in the church today. These things were tied to the era of the apostles. Now, I have often heard charismatic sort of misunderstand cessationists and they'll make an accusation like, wow, they really don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, if we were to take that literally, that cessationists don't believe in the Holy Spirit, then we're basically accusing them of being heretics because they deny the doctrine of the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead. But that's definitely not what's going on with cessationists. They definitely believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, specifically in things like regeneration and saving people and sanctification sanctifying his people and helping his people grow in holiness and convicting of sin and things like this. But they'll basically say that this specific period where the Holy Spirit ministered through these prophetic gifts and miraculous signs regularly has now ceased. And the Spirit is now limiting himself to these other things. So full disclosure, my earliest memories really take place in charismatic circles. I grew up in an Assembly of God church through some of my earlier years, and I saw practices like speaking in tongues and prophetic utterances and prayers for healings and things like this. 
And I'd say I generally floated around these circles until I was in Bible college, really. One of the first Bible colleges I went to was Charismatic and its beliefs. It wasn't until my later college years when I was finishing up my bachelor's degree that I really had more regular interaction with cessationists because the college I eventually finished my degree in was really a much more mixed group. And then eventually I became Calvinistic in my beliefs. We covered those doctrines in the series that I just completed, if you want to check that out. But what you'll often find is in Calvinistic circles, there tends to be a lot of cessationism. Now we could dive into a whole bunch of historical reasons as to why that is, but for now I'll simply state that that is commonly the case. And in places like strict Presbyterian circles, strict Reformed Baptist circles, you'll see a lot of cessationism and you'll see a lot of the arguments we'll talk about here. So when I eventually did become a Calvinist, a lot of my influences ended up becoming people who were cessationists, and so I was exposed to a lot of those arguments. In short, I will say that I have basically maintained a form of continuationism or charismatic theology, and that's really because while I found the Calvinistic arguments really compelling from these groups, I never ended up ultimately finding cessationist arguments super compelling. But I will focus down on what I think is the most important argument that they make, and it is one that I think a lot of charismatics really should reckon with. So a cessationist will often ask a charismatic, so you believe that you have received somehow a word from God, particularly in in this idea of current day prophecy. And then most charismatics will often say, yes, I believe in this idea of prophecy, but then they'll qualify it and say, but we should weigh and judge these different prophetic utterances through scripture. And then the cessationist will respond and basically be like, so are you telling me that this word was from God or wasn't it from God? Because we don't filter words from God in this way when it comes to scripture, the ultimate, you know, closed canon word of God. And they'll often bring up a quote, I believe it was from John Owen that says basically, if a prophetic word is in contradiction to scripture, then obviously it's false. But if it's in agreement with scripture, then it's not necessary. Why don't we just stick with the Bible if we're getting words that agree with the Bible? And I have to say, on its face, this argument really does sound pretty reasonable and compelling. And I find that a lot of charismatics who begin to move into reform circles generally will fall for this. I remember when I ended up going to see a debate where James White debated a Muslim. There were some other brothers there who had come to believe in the reformed faith who had left charismatic circles and they had gone the whole way. They had abandoned Arminianism and had become Calvinists, but then they also bought into the arguments for cessationism. And this was likely the general flavor of argument that drew them into that. But in response to this, from my continuationist or charismatic perspective, I think there's a few things that cessationists really need to consider as they look at the idea of continuationism. So as I said before, often the cessationists will argue these gifts were given basically to validate the message and ministry of the apostles, and now that the canon of their teachings is closed, there's no longer a purpose for them. But what we need to notice is, particularly from Paul, these teachings on these charismatic gifts are directed from him to the general body of Christ, to the church. And this basically assumes the idea of the practice of revelatory gifts by non-apostles. And I would say the examples that we see in the book of Acts bear this out. Paul ends up going and seeing, for example, these four prophetic sisters, and they apparently gained this reputation by practicing this gift. And we don't have any of their prophecies in the New Testament. And so obviously there is somehow this category of non-apostolic, non-canonical prophecy, and it existed at the time of the apostles. But then we see in, for example, the epistles that Paul does say that these gifts should be weighed by the elders up against apostolic teaching. There should be agreement there. And yet this agreement does not make those prophetic gifts irrelevant, as John Owen would argue. 
But I would basically qualify this by saying that it would appear from, say, the book of Acts that these non-apostolic prophetic utterances, they don't seem to take the same form that we see in the revelation given to, say, the apostles. When we see the revelation given to the apostles written in the New Testament, we see these eternal doctrinal truths about the nature of the gospel and the nature of God. And they're these unchanging, timeless truths. Whereas when we see a non-apostle prophesying, say, to Paul about what's going to take place as he travels, it's a very time-bound prophecy and it refers to a very specific situation. And then Paul applies the truth that he receives from God in order to do what he thinks he should do with that prophetic word. And that prophetic word given to the apostle ultimately does prove true, but it doesn't impact eternal doctrines about God or the gospel. And so you can kind of see how there's a difference between the revelation given to the apostles and how that filters ultimately any prophetic words we might receive today. And I think that this ultimately has borne out and been true in my own life. So for instance, when I was in Bible college in the charismatic Bible college I mentioned before, there was a practice where seniors who were graduating would receive prophetic words from leaders in the school. And just, you know, weeks before my turn, I ended up actually contemplating whether or not I should teach theology at some point. It was becoming a desire of mine, but I wasn't really sure it was from God. And I didn't talk about this to any of the people who ended up prophesying over me, but eventually when they did, they almost said this exact thing, this idea of teaching in a systematic way, and that God would use me in this way. They actually ended up using a scripture to explain this idea, I believe from the book of Ezekiel, and it ended up being the same scripture that was used to prophesy over me in high school. So it was a really interesting confirmation, I believe, from God. But again, notice it didn't carry any doctrinal information or redefining Christian truths or anything like that. It was given in such a way that it ultimately didn't have any disagreement with scripture, but it caused me to rely on scripture in order to have direction as to how to apply that word. And again, it was very time bound. It was not applicable to all Christians. And so therefore there wouldn't even be any purpose in writing such a thing down in the canon of scripture, like a cessationist will often argue would inevitably happen if we practice these things. So if we think of things this way, I think that it ultimately does make sense. And it would make sense that God would have this timeless body of revelation in scripture, and he would protect that revelation from corruption. And then the day-to-day practices of the church that might include prophetic utterances or things like that would be subject to that word. And he wouldn't protect us from corrupting those words apart from this closed body of revelation in scripture. It's not that he is giving faulty prophecies and that's why we need to filter them, but it's that he doesn't protect those prophecies from our human corruption apart from our dependence on scripture. And I think this is often why we see heresies like the prosperity gospel growing in many charismatic circles. It's because they're ultimately detaching themselves from that closed canon of scripture and they're focusing more and more on that day-to-day desire for prophetic utterances and they stop filtering them. So now that I've given you a definition of sort of the debate and some of the categories and some of the arguments that have basically kept me in the charismatic camp, I will point out that that doesn't mean that I'm still what you might call a classical Pentecostal. I could actually break this down sort of into two categories, although there's probably shades in between. In classical Pentecostalism, you have some very specific doctrines surrounding the idea of the charismatic gifts. In classical Pentecostalism, you'll have the idea of what you might call two separate blessings, where you receive the Holy Spirit in salvation, as every believer does, but then they teach that you eventually receive this idea of a second blessing, what they will call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where you receive new power from the Holy Spirit, and they generally will teach that the sign that should always accompany this is the gift of tongues. And so they tend to see that as a gift for all believers, and then you might receive other spiritual gifts as well. Whereas on the other side of this, there's what you might call a more general evangelical charismatic belief. 
And I'd say I fall more into this camp these days. When the Apostle Paul, for instance, talks about the believers in the church being baptized into one spirit, I think in terms of vocabulary, this is the closest kind of thing you'll see to the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit when the apostles speak of these things. But when he uses this term, I think he's ultimately referring to the idea of salvation, not a second blessing. And so in my view, if you are saved, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and you have received all of the Holy Spirit. I think the idea of these two things, salvation and baptism in the Holy Spirit being divided, is really unique to a very specific phase in the New Testament where people came to believe in Christ, but then Pentecost had not yet come. And then therefore, as that message spread from there, people often were encountered who kind of already believed in Christ, but they hadn't received this empowerment. But now in our day, this all kind of happens at once. The gospel is preached and then the idea of receiving the Holy Spirit is understood to be coupled with this in a more holistic sense. And I think if you read through, for instance, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul is pretty clear that God gives these gifts as he wills. He asks rhetorically, do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? With the assumed answer being no, God gives gifts to different people in different times as he wills. And I don't want to speak above my pay grade here in terms of technical issues in Greek, but from what I've been taught and from what I understand, the idea of healing can also be confused by classical Pentecostals. From what I've heard, when the term gift of healing is used, the Greek behind that is much more of something like gifts of healings. In other words, the gift is the event of healing itself. And ultimately what that means is that healing is not so much something that an individual can carry around as a gift to be applied whenever they want, but the event of a healing is the gift being referred to. Therefore, it could manifest for any individual as God wills if they pray for healing for a person. And therefore, it's not so much something that someone can have sovereignty over the way that God does. And it sort of put me in an interesting spot, sort of having this overall perspective now somewhere in between. I wouldn't say it's between cessationism and Pentecostalism, but I think it is a more tame view of the charismatic gifts. Not that the Holy Spirit is tame, but it is much more of an idea that God is sovereign over the giving of those gifts. And that also keeps me from saying things that I think Pentecostals often say that are somewhat in error when they look at someone like a cessationist and say, boy, I wish you had the Holy Spirit in the sense of being baptized in the Holy Spirit like they believe. Ultimately, I believe that all true believers do truly have the Holy Spirit in the full sense. However, I believe that there are further experiences with the Holy Spirit that cessationists should be seeking out. But these are gifts that God gives to people who already have the Holy Spirit. They don't receive the Holy Spirit again or in a different way, but they begin to practice gifts that they may not even know they already had. And so there you have it. That's sort of my perspective on it. There's my explanation of the different perspectives and sort of where I land. Hopefully this has been helpful to you and has clarified some issues and maybe given you some things to chew on if you were already on one side or the other. So if you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you, again, leave a like if you enjoyed yourself. Comment below if you have any questions or thoughts or insight or experiences concerning this. If you're listening, make sure, again, you follow the podcast. And if you are a Christian who is interested in gaming, make sure that you check out my crossplay gaming channel on YouTube. The link to that is in the description description here on YouTube, or if you're listening, just jump over to YouTube and type youtube.com slash crossplaygamingtv, and we will see you all around in the next one. Thank you so much for watching or listening.